Okay, so, uh, Jamie. Matt. Jamie. Wait a minute, is this number 11? This is numero 11. I never thought we'd get past ons, if I'm honest. <laughs> oh no, ons is 11, isn't it? Yeah, we are on ons. That's what, oh, that's what I said. I've made a fool of myself. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts, here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Podcast. Back, back into space. space. It's been a busy week, but I think you should start off by something that's literally just happened. Just happened, Jamie. It's bad. It's bad. Well, let's wind back a bit and mention yeah. that it is pretty much the 50th birthday of the Soyuz uh, rocket. It is, and um, not the best way to celebrate. No, it's not the best way to celebrate, because um, uh, the Soyuz rocket had rolled out for uh, an ISS resupply. Yeah. And unfortunately, it looks like the MS-04 Progress cargo craft has been Mm. lost. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, we were 6 minutes 22 seconds into the flight, and it looks like it's, uh, yeah, it looks like it's blown up. It may be too uh, be too early to tell, but are there any signs of what happened? It's been confirmed as as lost 120 miles over the Tuva Republic in southern Russia. Ouch! It's, it was absolutely packed full of stuff to go up to the uh, International Space Station. That one as well. Well, I hope uh, they still get their Christmas turkey. You, you know what's really bad is that uh, there was spares for the Russian toilets. No, and, oh. and as we heard on. Not last podcast, but the podcast before, the, the, the toilet thing can get quite serious. It can get serious. So, I, yes. I imagine that the, the breaking news up there is going to be even worse then. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be happy about this. There's personal hygiene items, health monitoring equipment, and hardware for oh. the station's air purification system. So it's going to start getting smelly up there as well. Yeah, that sounds like an expensive crash. And, oh no, and a new Orlan space suit. That, that's, oh. That, that's really yeah. that's, Oh. They're, they're not cheap things either. And, and supplies for the environmental control and water recycling. Uh, so the next, the next launch is actually to the space station on December the 9th with a Japanese HTV cargo freighter. Well, have- at least they can get something up there before Christmas. I think that's, that's good. That's important. Yeah, I think there's quite a few um, supply missions before Christmas, actually. Yeah. Uh, quite a few stuff going up. But that that's a rare one, isn't it? Uh, uh, the that Russian, is rare. The Soyuz actually not doing its job. I wonder how many how many problems they've they've ever had with Soyuz. Can't be many. Well, Soyuz, yeah, it's 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 got a it's got a particularly good safety record. And one of the reasons why it's got yeah. a good safety record is because. Because of this fifty-year heritage, it's it's a fairly unchanged design. You know, they've made yeah. improvements, but they've made very small improvements, which is the opposite to uh, Elon Musk's method of lots of improvements all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 but, absolutely. Uh, I heard Elon Musk talking about how he was going to that uh, he was pretty much on the last version of the Falcon Nine, and the, and that was it. It was going to sort of stay a solid launch vehicle with no changes after that. Point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Well, we should say... So, from some bad news to some great news. Matt, tell me about frozen lakes on Mars. Yeah, so, uh, it, uh, quite in, in the news this week, uh, it looks like people using the Sharad, 
which is yeah. uh, which actually stands for shallow radar. And so it should be pronounced Sharad. Sharad. Yeah, it should be pronounced Sharad. Yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, and uh, that's a that's a, an example of uh, allophones where because <laughs> it would be Sharad if you were expecting an R because the Shah uh, a phoneme and <laughs> I've, I've probably got a bit too far off um, off <laughs> off topic it's alright Matt the, but it's a good it happens of I do it often yeah just, just so you know it's a good example of allophones anyway uh, it um, looks like uh, scientists using the, the Sharad or the Sharad on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter have found water ice in lower latitudes which and quite a lot of it Enough water, in fact, to fill Lake Superior. Yeah, that's a pretty big lake. It's a very big lake. Is it, in fact, so what implications? Biggest... Well, I think it is in North America. Is it, so? So, what implications does this have then? Of course, it's going to be a great thing for any any humans going there that they can get this water because I think uh, I was reading earlier about a bottle of water. Just a normal-sized bottle of water, in order to get that into space, is something like two and a half grand. So this is definitely going to save some money, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, and, and what I've realised is that water now, what the, the kind of that as a um, resource is ex- resource. Yeah, resource. That water as a resource is really, really important. And yeah. the fact that you can make rocket fuel from it. You can absolutely. You know, it's obviously essential for life. For Mars missions, having water on the ground is going to be just unbelievably useful. Yes. Uh, and I think what's exciting about this is uh, the fact that it's going to be quite easy to actually mine. It's not going to be, you know, too harsh to mine. So it looks like mm. it's quite easily, you know, it's quite easy to get at. Uh, and it's in a region called the Utopia Planitia, which is the Plains of Paradise. And, wow. Yeah, and those eagle-eared Trekkie fans, those ones with the final frontier... I know, I know. Uh, uh, ...will recognise that as the location of the Starfleet Yards where the Enterprise D was built. Well, listen, Matt, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I've not come here to lie to you. If I had to get water from anywhere on Mars, it would definitely be from the Plains of Paradise. Well, why not? If I was gonna, if I was gonna go anywhere, that's where I'd go. Anyway, yeah. So in fact, that's this is a perfect example of why science is useless because I would have landed there anyway. So I, exactly. I didn't even need to know that there was water, and now they've ruined the surprise. I don't know what all the fuss is about. It would have been easy. What's there's another little interesting uh, aside to that is one of the reasons why there's water there. Aha! Is they think that maybe Mars are sort of lolloped around and and its equator hasn't always been in the same place it's tilted around and one of the reasons why it does that is because it doesn't have a large moon like earth does to sort of keep it in a nice steady position and it's just it's just another indication of just how important the moon is for the kind of earth stabilization of the earth that allowed uh human biology to evolve for example and I think absolutely uh, that's, that's very interesting in itself. So just as a science article, it's very interesting, and as a space exploration article, it's very interesting. It really is. I mean, if you think about as well the the type of construction that they're going to be doing on Mars, eventually, it's just going to be handy for everything. Yeah, 
Um, uh, and it, it was it was semi predicted because um, the look of this place, of the Plains of Paradise, um, mm. they've noticed that it looks very similar to the Canadian Arctic. It's got similar land uh, forms. I oh, really so they were thinking. Yes, yeah, so they were thinking maybe that it has this. Um, maybe it's born from the similar geological processes, and, and it seems that that is actually the case. Maybe they'll find some kind of Martian maple syrup as well. <laughs> I do Which, hope so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that would solve another problem as well, wouldn't it? When yeah, it will solve the problem of what uh, astronauts are going to have on their pancakes. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, we've already got water to drink. What do we eat? Hello. Hello. Martian maple syrup. Oh, that's just genius. I heard a rumour that Canadians put maple syrup on their pizza. And I'd like, uh, if there's any Canadian listeners out there, to please confirm or deny this, because it does worry me a, a, a touch. Yeah, can, uh, uh, maple syrup. Uh, isn't there some kind of massive stockpile of, of maple syrup? It's like really? it's such a valuable resource. They have it kind of under military, and <laughs> guarded by the military. So there's something well, really, there's some really. I quite like that. It's yeah. something like that. I, I am kind of making that up. What would we stockpile in the UK? Sarcasm. Sar- sarcasm. Yeah. Fish and ch- greasy fish and chips. Slight ironic misery. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, we digress. So, we have um, Matt, well, what's what's been happening in the world of space mining? Ah, no, space mining. I thought we should talk about this because I had um, a brilliant interview earlier this week. Very, very quick with a chap called John Amabile. I hope I've oh, yeah. pr- pronounced that right. Uh, and he's written a book called Changing the World. That's a strong title. It is a strong title, and it's his plan to promote profitable space exploration, asteroid mining and terraforming, all within existing technology and military equipment. And he hopes to do that in a single human lifetime. Wow. And it's quite a compelling little chat. Um, So, yeah, he's. um, I'll let him do the talking. So do you want to listen to that interview now? Let's do it. Hi John, thanks very thanks very much for uh, taking the call. Uh, oh yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, because it looks like a it looks like a really interesting uh, book. Tell me about the big idea. Yeah, sure. So, um, long story short, um, I'm an I'm an army officer in the U.S. Army, and uh, specifically my job in the army. Uh, well, I recently I changed jobs, so I do something else now. But for five years, I was an airspace and missile defense officer, so I worked with radar and missile and things like that. Um, and I've just always really liked space my whole life ever since I was a kid. So long story short, uh, my book is about different technology that the U.S. and the U.K. military has um, and how that can be used to colonize space. And also a big thing in my book, kind of that's the one large thing I talk about in my book. The second thing is proposed changes to the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. Because I, I was constantly seeing something like, oh, wow, this would be so useful for mining an asteroid – or, oh, wow, this would be so useful for, you know, checking out the mineral content of an asteroid or terraforming a planet. But whenever I looked it up, it was always like, oh, well, there's no point in doing that because there's no money to be made from it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my bachelor's actually in European history. And I always found, you know, if someone come up, comes up with an airplane or a rocket or anything, the businessmen always find that. And they say, oh, what a wonderful invention. We can make so much money. Let's make 50,000 of them. Let's improve the design. 
things like that. And so sadly, because of the Outer Space Treaty, though, that's pretty much illegal to do. It's, you know, if I had enough money and I wanted to make a Disneyland on the moon and use a bunch of army rockets to do it and buy them at a discount price when the army was getting rid of them, you know, I wouldn't exactly go to jail, but I'd have no security in my property. You know, anyone else could sue me or take over Disneyland moon or anything like that. And uh, here, like SpaceX and even uh, Sir Richard Branson at Virgin Galactic, they're both having, wouldn't say quite challenges, but that's kind of a you know, a big problem that they face that any other businessman would not face, like a, a mining company or a, a cruise liner building a railroad. You own the stuff that you build, and then you make money from it afterward. So so anyway, uh, to be very brief, first thing I recommend that treaty be completely changed, and we replace it with what I call the Space Corporation Charter. So basically the idea being that we create a legal entity, and we say everything in the solar system belongs to you know, this legal entity called Space Corporation. And then pretty much democratic governments would be able to buy shares in that, either through just money or technology. So like Britain and the United States both have Trident missiles, which fortunately those are going, you know, we've not had a nuclear war with anyone, which is wonderful. So those missiles are going bad. They're aging and they go, you know, just like a car or a computer or anything else. They just get old and they stop working. Mm-hmm. Um, so as those systems cease to work, we can take those offline, just remove the nuclear warhead from them, and put sensor equipment on. So I've kind of I go into more detail in my book, but there's a lot of things that the the civilian mining industry uses, right? So like a gravimeter, which mm-hmm. we use on Earth all the time. You basically fly over a mountain and it tells you what's inside of it. That would work beautifully for asteroids if we could put those on a you know a rocket and fly them past an asteroid. Also, nuclear thermal rockets, which NASA built in the 1970s, and for some silly political reason they stopped using, uh, but those would be ideal for space. They're actually fueled from the same stuff that's in a nuclear weapon, so yeah. we could just remove the plutonium or uranium out. That would be the fuel source, and then we'd all we would need is uh, hydrogen, which we can get from water asteroids. One of the most common things in the universe is hydrogen. Yeah. Um, also, I go into space, what I call space infrastructure, so both the, the U.S. and the U.K. have a lot of just junk floating in orbit. Uh, but a lot of that junk is in very big pieces. Like when people say, like, I was very surprised doing my research. It's actually things the size of an apartment building. There's four, uh, there's four stage three Saturn V rockets, or it's the last stage of a Saturn V, but it's 30 feet across. Each of them is 30 feet across. So I made a very kind of simple schematic of how we could make a propellant station and a food station, basically grow food in orbit. And then with a nuclear reactor, actually produce propellant. So if we brought back an ice asteroid, we could kind of put it inside of all different space junk that's already in orbit. And then just very – I actually worked for a General Electric, too, uh, when I first got out of the Army. Um, so it's, it's a very simple ways to use energy to split water and produce hydrogen propellant. Um, all we'd have to fly up is the uranium, which is very low mass. Even a huge Navy ship, both the U.S. and U.K. navies use nuclear-powered ships. It's a t- it's like the size of a basketball amount of uranium to drive you know a huge navy ship all around the world. Yeah, um, and then some of the other stuff, the more short short term kind of very practical part of it is mining asteroids. Um, so as far as mining on Earth goes, it's about if you were trying to mine gold like in Australia, it's about 0.1 ounce. They call it OPT ounce per ton. Mm-hmm. So if they dig up a ton of dirt, you know, two thousand or you know, in metric, one thousand kilograms. And they get an ounce, like a tenth of one kilogram of yeah. gold. Yeah. It's insanely inefficient. Now, we're very 
certain though that in space the concentrations are much higher. So, for example, uh, 433 Eros, which I met, that's kind of my model asteroid I use a lot in my book. Mm-hmm. That's about a two-week flight from at its closest approach. It's about two weeks from Earth using a nuclear thermal rocket. Um, based, on, we've not actually gone to Eros and measured it, but we're very certain from the the spectrum, uh, you know, the light that ba- that bounces off of Eros, mm-hmm. that it's 0.5 percent platinum. So to put that in perspective, on Earth, 2,000 or 1,000 kilograms gets you 0.1 kilogram of gold. Yeah. On Eros, 1,000 kilograms gets you about 5 kilograms. So it's 50 times the amount of valuable material. that, And that's so the best place on Earth is 150th as good as anything on Eros. Yeah, actually, I saw a, a, a brilliant infographic about that with, with all the different um, – the makeup of, of the large asteroids that are nearby – and it's actually quite an eye-opener, isn't it, just how full of um, <laughs> minerals and, and useful stuff that they are. I mean, it's, it, it, the economic case for them is actually quite strong. But, yeah, I, I really like the idea that you're saying that the only real way to make sure that you can make money from going out and trying to mine these asteroids is actually changing the treaties in the first place. Is that, uh, am, I, am I on the right lines there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because on Earth, you know, if you look at like um, Barrick Gold, it's a huge company on Earth. They mine probably 20 or 15 percent of the Earth's gold right now. Mm-hmm. They have mines in Australia and Canada. But, yeah, that's a lot of money. You know, you have to dig miles under the Earth. You need thousands of workers that, you know, very well-paid engineers that know what they're doing. It's not something you can do as a hobby. Like, it's very complex. Yeah. And so, yeah, if we were going to go to Eros and do mining, yeah, there'd be a lot of, you know, so I think we could absolutely get businessmen to put out money, but they would want to actually own the asteroid itself or maybe even own it's 30 kilometers across. I mean, it's, yep. you know, the size of a county. So you could definitely have, you know, even 10 companies that each own three kilometers. There's lots of different solutions to that problem. But, yeah, without private, without any kind of ownership of it, no one's going to go. Yeah. I mean, it's the uh, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, have you actually spoke to any of the mining companies like Rio Tinto or anything like that? Or have any of them sort of shown an interest in that? Or are they just being put off by that uh, the, the treaty, Outer Space Treaty? Uh, yeah, I've not. I just uh, finished my book probably about a month ago. I've not spoken to uh, anyone in the mining sector. I will say, um, for like SpaceX and Planetary Resources, those companies that are kind of more specifically talking about asteroid mining, uh, they did make a, a minor change to the law, which I guess is okay. Where if you actually go to an asteroid and you bring, say, five kilograms of gold back, then you do own that five kilograms of gold. They made a little amendment to the treaty, which that's that's okay, but that would be like building a huge factory. And all that you own are the cars that come out of it. Like, of course, uh, you want security in your actual thing. Um, but, yeah, I don't think anyone's really taking this seriously because, again, the treaty kind of makes it Ill- not illegal, but it's kind of a joke. Like, no investor would possibly invest money into something if they didn't actually own it. It had some kind of bizarre, you know, it's like a national park or international water, very, like, hazy, weird legal status. No one, no responsible person would invest in that. Yeah, I mean, one thing I did see in your book as well, which I thought was really interesting, is the plans to terraform uh, Mars and Venus. Uh, can you tell us a bit, a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's um, – I wrote the book. It's kind of one big idea just done in phases. Yeah. So basically the, the middle phase is asteroid mine. You know, of course, people want to return in their investment. Um, terraforming the, – the, my plan for terraforming um, – there's so a brilliant guy in America named Robert Zubrin. He used to work for NASA. He wrote a yep. book called Case for Mars. Um, I have not met him, but I've read a lot of his work. And he wrote about uh, – this is where I got the idea from. But he wrote about 
Mars is very similar to Earth in, in most ways. The big difference is, though, billions of years ago, comets and asteroids holding ice and nitrogen crashed into the Earth. Mm-hmm. We know that that stuff, it doesn't form in this part of the solar system. It had to come in from the Kuiper Belt. Um, so we just, you know, very fortunate that, ha- you know, of course, all life on Earth is here because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it would not be that hard to do that to Mars on purpose. So uh, Dr. Zubrin wrote a thing on sending rockets to the Kuiper Belt or the asteroid belt, grabbing asteroids, you know, and again, of course, we can scan the asteroids. We know exactly what they're made of. Just do, you know, simple. And I do all the math in my book of uh, which asteroids, the mass, uh, the map, you know, approximate times it would take to push them out and get them to Mars. Uh, and Venus, a similar thing. Venus would just need – Venus needs a lot of water. Mars needs mostly nitrogen and a little bit of water. Mm. And the masses are different, things like that. But um, now the, the the unique thing in my book, though, unlike Dr. Zubrin, is um, – I actually recommend using uh, repurposed nuclear weapons. So right now we have, when I say we, so the United States has 7,000 nuclear weapons, something like that. Russia has more. A lot of them don't work. Uh, Britain has a few hundred. So does France and China. Uh, fortunately, we've not used any of these, you know, thank God. Um, but it would not be difficult to alter them slightly so that they had no military purpose. So right now military weapons are designed so... Uh, you know, if one nuclear weapon detonates, the other one, they're hardened against electromagnetic pulses. There's very in-depth security protocol. You know, just any any private having a bad day can't use them. It's, you know, it's very complex. Um, I don't know if you see any movies where they, they go into detail about that stuff sometimes. But anyway, so we could basically take those nuclear weapons, and we could do it as in an international body. We can make it where, you know, 12 countries each had part of a code for it, and all 12 countries had to put in their code. Um, we could have a group of, say, you know, a Britain, a U.S. soldier, a Russian, and a Chinese guy go into space and do it. There, there's lots of different ways we could do that to ensure it was safe. But anyway, so using uh, nuclear weapons to divert the course of asteroids would be very fast. And so Zubrin's plan would have taken centuries to move asteroids out of the main belt or the, uh, the either the Kuiper belt or the main asteroid belt. But yeah, using nuclear weapons, we could do that in my plan. It would take 40 years. So if we started right now, in 32 years, we could have Venus terraformed, and 40 years, we'd have Mars terraformed. Yeah, uh, one of the sort of one of the things that um, uh, with that, that I always think the problem with Mars, of course, is Mars doesn't have its uh, magnetic field intact anymore. So once you've terraformed it, you've still got the solar winds whipping off the atmosphere that you've so carefully put there. Um, which gives uh, Venus the advantage. What, is there any kind of plans that to, to reactivate any kind of magnetic uh, protection from solar solar storms and solar winds? Yes, absolutely. So uh, there's very simple answer to that question. So there's um, Lagrange points are, of course, you know, gravitational. I guess you call them co-orbits. So the, the every every body. So you know, Earth and the Sun or Mars and the Sun. There's a Lagrange point one. Which which is locked in orbit between, you know, any large body and the sun. Mm-hmm. So in my book, I just abbreviate those as VL1, so the Venusian Lagrange point one, and ML1, the Mars Lagrange point one. Um, there's there's twelve Lagrange points total, but those are really the ones I use in my book. So anyway, there's a thing that we have on Earth called a Helmholtz coil. It's not very complex. It's just basically um, a circle. You run an electromagnetic, well, you run an electrical charge through it, and it generates an electromagnetic field. And on Earth, we use that all the time to test equipment. So we generate a field, you know, run a radio through it. We generate a second field in opposition to the first field, stuff like that. Um, also, 
for weapon electro electromagnetic countermeasures stuff like that we use those all the time so anyway it would be not terribly expensive because they're hollow so you could make one the size of a planet like if you made one that was say 20, uh, 24,000 miles across that sounds huge but it would be hollow so it'd be like a 24,000 mile you know there's probably that much internet cable in any like american or british town it's actually not a lot if you think of you know it just being a, a single strand um powering it might be a challenge i discussed that in my book but basically in my book i advocate having um for venus the vl1 point venus also gets twice as much sunlight as earth mm-hmm. so i advocate having a helmholtz coil but half of it is covered in solar cells so the solar cells reduce the sunlight by half so it's more like earth norm mm-hmm. and they also produce the power to you know run the coil and block the electromagnetic radiation and basically the same thing for mars is you know the math is different but the same basic idea for mars Wow, and, and uh, yeah, because I noticed in the book you're saying that, that that this is all achievable in a lifetime. Absolutely, so, yeah. That that's kind of the really interesting thing, isn't it? Because other plans along these lines seem to have timescales of m- much bigger than that. E- even Elon Musk, <laughs> with his crazy timescales. Yeah, and, and I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, but again. For some reason, I mean, I can't speak to Britain, but here there's kind of the businessmen never speak to the politicians. And so while I would really wish that, you know, the business interests would go to Washington or London and say, hey, this treaty is really in my way. Let's get rid of this treaty or let's change it. You know, there's lots. So anyway, they're kind of not. That's kind of the the elephant in the We say that in America. That's the elephant yeah. in the room. That's yeah. the big thing in our way. And, you know, Elon Musk, although they're kind of sleeking, thinking of ways to climb over the elephant or crawl under him. And that's admirable. Yeah. But uh, to just get rid of the damn thing. Yeah, but yeah. the mining and the terraforming are go together in the book. So a lot of the technology we use for mining, so we conduct a mining survey where we scan. So the same apparatus that scans an asteroid says, oh, how much gold does this have? That same thing can tell us how much nitrogen it has or how much water. So all of those efforts are you know, combined throughout the whole course of the book. Um, mining the asteroids, by my time scale, that would take about eight years to start getting money back from asteroids. Uh, of course, investors are very practical, down-to-earth people. They wouldn't, you know, and waiting eight years for money is much better than waiting 40. Um, and there's really an infinite uh, – I did the math. There's about $150 billion a year that comes from uh, rare – I call them marketable metals, so rare earth metals, gold, platinum. Uh, I give a specific list in my book. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, so if Space Corporation was making money doing that, you know, that would – you know, a lot more people would be, you know, more comfortable with space commerce – a lot more interest of workers or colonists going into space. And that would – so it's not like terraforming just – we do nothing for 40 years and then Mars and Venus are terraformed. Yeah. We would be mining asteroids, and some of that mining effort would be diverted to mining and diverting asteroids for terraforming. It's a really, really fascinating uh, concept. Thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Interplanetary Podcast. Okay, yeah, thank you. He's a bit of a genius, isn't he? It is, it is pretty cool, isn't it? Good work, John. So I'd like, I was reading a little bit about mining in space, Mm -hmm. mining the asteroids. So, I mean, that's, this is, this is the next big thing in terms of where we're getting resources from. Obviously there's lots of platinum and, uh, and I didn't know anything about it, but palladium, uh, which is even harder than platinum with similar uses. Um, and obviously water, um, that could be sent back down. But, um, I mean, wow. It's it's the... It's the water is really, really useful because you can, instead of yeah taking the water up to uh, or taking fuel up, for example, Elon Musk's trip to Mars, 
he he sends up a whole refueling ship. That's that sort of second bit where the where the refueling ship gets plonked back onto the rocket and goes up. Yeah, and refuels. Really, if you were mining uh, water in the asteroid belt, you could have that uh, there already. It, it seems to be a, a really easy thing to do, doesn't it? That, that well, not easy, obviously, but it's as, <laughs> as a cost of a resource. Show off! I've got this fantastic infographic that I saw, which I actually posted on the uh, podcast Twitter a few months ago. Oh yeah! It shows the relative values of of quite a few different asteroids that they found out. And it kind of orders them in their asteroid type. You've got metallic ones, stony ones, uncommon carbonaceous ones. Oh, what? The C-type? Yeah, your C-types. Your C-types, your S-types. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and it shows you whether they've got cobalt, iron, hydrogen, water, nitrogen, ammonia, nickel, platinum. So, you know, these... And how difficult, how difficult is it? I mean, we know how difficult it is to land on an asteroid. But how... How un, how off course do they go in their in their orbits? Are they completely erratic in their orbits, no. or once they're on an orbit, is it just pretty straightforward that that unless they crash into anything uh, or start spinning, that we'll be able to pretty much okay land on them? Yeah, well, actually, yeah, the, the, the asteroids in the asteroid belt, um, they do spin, so obviously you've got to align your spin with them. Uh, which, which obviously, um, the Philae lander, for example, managed to land on a comet, and I would imagine that a comet is a lot harder to land on than an asteroid. Yeah. Uh, so these asteroids, no, they're they're in very stable orbits. You know, these things in the asteroid belt, for example, have have been around for, you know, as long as the Earth's been around. So it's you know, or, or longer, in fact. So it's kind of they're they're, they're in steady orbits. They tend to have this thing where sunlight might be shining on one side of them and that creates um, photons bouncing off that eventually kind of make almost have a little engine where they actually wow. it starts to move around where you kind of, because sunlight's bouncing off, that actually pushes it around and it starts to spin. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons why they think we have... You know, asteroids suddenly sort of crash into each other and, and fly out. That they're not in super stable orbits; they do move around a little bit because of that, because of that effect. Um, Matt, is it anything like when those two Tie Fighters chased the Millennium Falcon through the asteroid field? Do you, do you know what the asteroid field's nothing like that? Actually, that the, the, the rocks are really, really, really sparsely uh, spaced. Really? Yeah, and that's why... So it definitely wouldn't have looked as impressive, would it? No, you, you don't do any kind of banking and no. uh, and dodging of... Um, well, another thing you don't do is banking as well. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's basically completely... Um, it's completely wrong. So uh, one thing on this infographic's amazing. There's an asteroid called Davida, and it's got nickel, iron, cobalt, water, you know, uh, ammonia. It's got all those things yeah. on it, right? Guess how much it's worth if you were to be able to get all that stuff back to Earth. What's the size of it? It's 326 kilometres across. Blimey. Um, oh, uh, two million pounds. <laughs> 27 quintillion dollars. I was way off. You were, you were so far out. Yeah, I was yeah, way off. Can things. you say that figure again, please? <laughs> it is 
27 quintillion dollars. So a, a quintillion is, is what compared to billion? Uh, I believe it's a billion billion, isn't it? Is it? Well, either way, that's going to melt my head. No, it's, 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 it's quite a lot. Well, no wonder we want to mine asteroids. So, yeah, uh, a quintillion is a billion billion. A billion times a billion. It's a billion billion. So, so this, if you were to able to drag that thing back, the, the actual raw materials themselves are worth 27 billion billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, oh. e- e- even, even these tiny ones like Ursula, uh, that, that's 1.4 billion billion dollars. So you can see that, you know, these things are worth a lot of money, like... Just, Absolutely, that's why they're interested. Of money. One of the problems, as we heard in that interview, is is really all forms of uh, exploration and all you know the way the way the way that we've explored the Earth has really come from resources. You know, people only went to California because there was gold in them hills. Absolutely, that's so true. And and you know, and obviously, you know. We're glad we went to California now because it's presumably quite a nice place to live. But the only reason why we ever exploited that area is is for resources. So I think it's all about this um, about changing some of the treaties so that uh, companies can go up there and actually make some money, so that it actually forces us out to go and get this stuff. Maybe we'll settle. Maybe we'll start colonising asteroids, Matt. You heard it here first, Musk. <laughs> well, I would imagine that Elon Musk going to get into this game as well. He can't possibly. Think he probably that, will. He can't possibly stay out of it. Um, uh, so he's yeah. So Chris Lewicki says we've every expectation that delivering water from asteroids and creating an in-space refueling economy is something that we'll see in the next ten years, even in the first half of the twenty twenties. Ah, oh, okay. So, so not that long. So I think, yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up, really, because I, I, it looks like one of those things that we suddenly might see a race for, a new gold rush, as it were. So planet, planetary resources uh, are prospecting the, uh, these asteroids by using um, space-based, space-based telescopes called yeah. ARCIDs. Uh, and uh, one of their... Are they from Manchester? Yeah, ARCID. <laughs> uh, they are. They they were co-designed by Liam Gallagher. <laughs> Me uh, and our kid are off to space. Yeah. So our kid genuinely is into space. Is going into space. Uh, yeah. One of them actually blew up on the Antares uh, uh, space disaster, oh. which, which was another one of these resupply missions that went terribly wrong. Yeah, that's uh, not good. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the Arch- an archid was lost on that, and it was supposed to be it's a, it's a nanosat basically that that one. But they're going to build yeah. these little space uh, space based telescopes to basically prospect um, different asteroids and see how much they're worth and whether they're you know and and then decide which ones to go to and and start their mining. So Matt, I've got a question for you. Yeah, yeah. You know Exo Mars? Oh yes, do I? What's been happening with the uh, the TGO? The TGO, the Trace Gas Orbiter. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. That's yeah, right. that's right. Which, and and of course, this is one quarter of the Exo Mars mission. Where Schiaparelli, of course, smashed into Mars famously last month. It did. 
but the trace gas orbiter uh, was successfully inserted into orbit yeah. on nineteenth of October. Nineteenth. So, so on the nineteenth, it's got into orbit, uh, which I, which is something like um, four hundred kilometers above Mars's surface, so two hundred and fifty mile right above, and, it's, and it's, I think it's in a circular orbit, so it goes round. So its main and goal is to make detailed inventory of rare gases. Is that right? It's looking for for those telltale signs that there might be life, Aha. particularly that sort of bacterial life, maybe. Yeah, because uh, it's looking for methane, water vapor, nitrogen dioxide, so all the, all those sort of things. Uh, and uh, high methane is is a proper marker for biological activity. Uh, even, but you can get geological processes that create them in hydrothermal yeah. vents for example but it would be really really good so all the uh, so they've actually started switching on some of these instruments that are on board ExoMars on, on board the TGO yeah and uh, been getting back some pictures and uh, ESA have been proudly uh, displaying these pictures because they're really, really interesting. You know, they're actually fantastic. I didn't realise that they were going to be this good. So, um, so I'm actually really excited. I think that, that I'm looking the at them right now. Of, they are great. Yeah, they're amazing. Particularly the sort of 3D scans. Yeah, it's got this sort of stereoscopic camera that's able to kind of um, so you can build up really detailed 3D imagery of the planet's surface. That's it's, it's that's gonna, very cool. Yeah, so when when all those get switched on in earnest, I think it's going to be absolutely, you know, it's going to be really, really good, isn't it? Look it's at that altitude map. That is yeah. sick, man. It's going to be amazing. So, yeah, it's got quite a few interesting um, things as payloads on board. It's got the nadir and occult- occultation of Mars Discovery, the Nomad. I can't help thinking that they got Nomad and worked backwards on that one. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> which is an ultraviolet spectrometer, an uh-huh. infrared spectrometer. Uh, and that was developed by Belgium. Mm. The Russians built a atmospheric chemistry suite, or the ACS. That's slightly... Nice. You know, that, that they just went with what it was. Yeah. Uh, the the colour and stereo surface imaging system, or CASIS, mm. is, is the uh, colour stereo camera. And it's got, yeah. uh, building digital elevation models of the Martian surface, and that was developed by the Swiss. Oh, really? And good yeah, work, Swiss. And fine, the good, good. Yeah, I'm pretty chuffed with that. And the fine resolution epithermal neutron detector, or friend. Whoa. Uh, is uh, can provide information on the presence of hydrogen. Yes. Or hydrated minerals. Uh, on the uh, uh, in the first top one meter of the Martian surface, and that was developed by the Russians. But uh, it's actually the Italians are the main uh, sort of financial backers of uh, the TGO, followed by the British. So what an incredible international effort it is! That really is. That is heartwarming to hear that. Yeah. Go on, globe. Yeah, and poor old NASA actually was. Uh, don't have anything to do with this one because of the cost overruns of the James Webb telescope. Yes. They had to sort of say, sorry guys, we've actually um, run out of money. We can't give you anything. Oh. So that's that's why it went on board a Russian proton. Remember that? In fact, remember I do remember. And, and we had the good old Breeze M. Oh, I miss the Breeze M. Oh. Oh, we miss the Breeze M. So the, there's always been an eye problem on the uh, International Space Station. Eyesight has deteriorated. 
Yeah. And that's but you you often see pictures of the astronauts holding various eye testing equipment, and it seems that they finally got down to the bottom of what's causing this um, uh, syndrome, uh, visual impairment, intracranial pressure, or VIP. Yeah, that's easy. Uh, Two thirds of the astronauts uh, have got it, but it looks like it's something to do with spinal fluid. They, it's relate, basically it's related to the changes in the clear fluid which surrounds the brain and spinal cord. So it's got something to do with that. So they're, they're starting to isolate that down, and they did that using MRI scans before and after space flights. Right. And, and can, uh, can they do anything to stop this? Uh, well, now they've found the cause, I think they're going to start looking at uh, how to uh, stop it. Because it is irreversible damage to their eyesight. It's not, it's it's one of the kind of and another thing bad. here that it says is that not only is it blurry vision and, and inflamed optic nerves, but also your eyeballs flatten slightly. Oh. I mean that's got to be painful as well, isn't it? I don't yeah, even I don't even like taking my contact lenses in and out. Whoa. Let alone that. Yeah. Uh, the EM drive paper that we talked about was indeed published. Nice. Uh, and is still very controversial. And again, Scott Manley did a very, very good review on that, I thought, which was very balanced and essentially said he doesn't really believe a word of it until there's some really good, strong experiments. After all, it does ask us to uh, give up on Newton's second and third laws that have stood strong for hundreds of years. So Absolutely. It's got to be pretty strong evidence, this thing. Uh, yeah, you'd think so. And uh, the Russians, uh, after their disaster today, I'm afraid, um, on the whole this year, it turns out that the United States will have flown more rocket launches than Russia for the first time. They won't like that. Yeah, so this is the first year that the United States have flown more rockets. I wouldn't have thought that. That is pretty oppressive. So uh, Russia flew 18, or will have expected to have flown flown 18 by yeah. the end of the year but that includes today's blown up one china did 19 and the united states 20 blimey that's what they think i mean the numbers still aren't in yet so we'll have to see so we'll we'll have that in our special uh, end of the year roundup whether that absolutely yeah we'll keep going america you're doing very well guess how many uh, britain have ever done jamie oh go on hit me i can't even guess it's one. It's oh. one, and, and that is the picture of the rocket on the Interplanetary Podcast logo. No way. It certainly is. Well, I'll tell you what, Any... we might have only done one, but what a one. What a one. That's going to be my new catchphrase. <laughs> Thanks for listening. What a one. What a one. No, no, okay. bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week. See you soon. Bye. Bye.